Um, if you're not here regularly, we've been working through the Beatitudes, or what are known as the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel over the last few months, and we're continuing by looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. When I retired, I thought that my days of standing up here talking about tricky subjects were over. Um, but it appears not to be the case. Today, we're going to be talking about murder, adultery, and divorce. All of them are subjects that have affected people in this room. So I will try and be as sensitive as possible in doing so, but I'm well aware of the impact of all these issues. Probably means I'll make rather less use of humour than some of you are accustomed to me doing. Let's read the passage, shall we? We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through to 32. We have some slight technical constraints this morning, which means John will be controlling it for me. Right. I probably got the font a bit small there. I apologise, but it's a good reason to bring your own Bible with you. It says this, this is Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out till you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, or you've heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman or a woman divorced in this way commits adultery. Now, there are various ways in which evangelical and charismatic Christians read the Bible. There's the literalist approach. There's a very flat, literal approach which is primarily interested in the literal meaning of the words. It takes little interest in the culture in which the Bible is set. It tends to be anti-intellectual, rejecting any reading of the text that requires any kind of academic work to understand it. Such people tend to forget 
that it required academics to work out the earliest manuscripts and to translate them into, the, into English in the first place. The Bible did not drop down from heaven in English. In this reading, every sentence stands on its own and isn't fitted into a wider context of what the Bible's saying. This approach ignores the fact that God's revelation has been passed down to us in the form of literature, not a law book or manual. When I find myself giving proof texts that are just verses ripped out of context, I'm slipping into that way of reading. This approach also tends to miss the outline structure and it doesn't notice rhetorical devices in the text and fails to recognize hyperbole, both of which crop up in today's passage. Then there's the kind of symbolized and spiritualized reading, or sim- sim- yes, I got that the wrong way around, but you, you get what I'm saying, where everything has a deeper meaning. These people often connect up passages that are completely unconnected to what they're trying to draw out of them. It happens particularly, I might tread on some toes here, but it happens particularly in regard to Israel and the end times. People who read in this way often miss the plain meaning looking for a deeper meaning, one that fits into their particular scheme. They often have a specific focus and read the whole of Scripture through those lenses. It originates in a heresy way back in the first and second centuries known as Gnosticism, which just spiritualized everything. And then there's a third group. I'm not giving a comprehensive thing on hermeneutics here, but I just want us to understand these. And then there's a third group, those who argue that we shouldn't take any of this 2,000-year-old stuff too literally and just look for love. I'm caricaturing, but that's the summary. On one occasion, I was asked to go and do a couple of evenings for a church in Basingstoke on a really, really, really tricky subject. And after I'd exhaustively covered the topic scripturally, Seeking to offer a balanced view and to do, give credit to both sides of the argument, one bright spark piped up, but we don't really need to worry about what the Bible says. We just need to love people. Actually, we have to do both. And as with so many things, they all have an element of truth, but we need to hold them all together. The literary context, the cultural context... The literal meaning of the words, symbolism, and echoes of other parts of Scripture all matter. And today's passage can be read differently by each of those three groups of people, or each of those three approaches. It includes rhetorical devices, as we'll see in a minute. It includes, in my view, hyperbole. It does have an underlying theme, and it also has a plain meaning. But the cultural gap between us and them might lead us to misunderstand it as well. So, as we turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, we do need to reflect on what we're dealing with in this passage. First, there's something bigger than the, just the plain meaning of Jesus' words going on, in this, in, going on here. When in the Bible have we previously seen God's law being handed down on a mountain? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Moses, yes, can we have the picture? Yeah, if you were one of these early hearers, 
This idea of God's law being expounded on a mountain is ringing all sorts of bells in your head. All sorts of stuff is firing off in your head as Jesus starts talking on a mountain about the Ten Commandments. And here in today's passage, Jesus starts expounding two of those Ten Commandments and in the next section he'll deal with some more. It's also worth pointing out that much of the law following, the Old Testament following the Ten Commandments was case law. The stuff that Marion is reading in Deuteronomy is largely case law. It's largely saying, and what this commandment means is, in this situation, if your ox kills, I'm sorry, I'm off piste here now, but if your ox kills someone, this is how you handle the situation. Much of the Old Testament law is case law, casuistic law, law that explains the commandment. And that, I would argue, is what Jesus is doing here. He's not giving exhaustive rules about murder, about divorce, or about adultery that are the only thing and the only thing that needs to be said about it. He is expanding on that law. Um, He's also intensifying it. But he's not not just giving more law. There's a subtext in what's going on here on the Sermon on the Mount that points to Jesus as more than a teacher, more than a rabbi, more even than Messiah, but as God himself. Only one person gets to hand down law on a mountain, um, and that is God himself. So to anyone who reads their whole Bible, and you should do that, I've often said that if if you ever hear I've murdered a Christian, their dying words will probably have been, ah, but that's the Old Testament, it doesn't count anymore. Um, I have no intention of murdering anyone who says that. I will just look at them pityingly. But this section is pregnant with echoes of God's great act of deliverance in Exodus. That's what it's pointing back to. And I'd argue that Matthew is trying to make sure that we're aware of that. The scene is being set early in Jesus' ministry for a new act of God's deliverance, but not the one that they were expecting and hoping for. Now, Jesus has said in the passage that Roger spoke about last week that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he also said that you cannot set aside the the commandments. Now, I've heard too many people say that and then go on to speak as though Jesus did abolish the law. He didn't. He came to fulfill it. So in our passage, Jesus goes on to expand on and explain and intensify some of these commandments. He isn't abolishing them. He's not even changing them. He is explaining them, okay? He's not changing them. He's not abolishing them. He's explaining what it looks like when God's kingdom has come and we have God's law written on our hearts. He's moving them away from a purely literal reading of understanding of the commandments. You shall not murder. I haven't murdered anyone. I can tick that one off. He's he's moving them away from that kind of tick box understanding 
to thinking about what they mean in the context of God's kingdom. Now, it's also noticeable that in this section, I forgot to take my inhaler this morning, I'm getting a bit breathless, Jesus is dealing with the commandments that cover how we relate to other pe- one another, not of those that deal with how we relate to God. The first, should have checked, I think it's four, um, deal with how we relate to God. The remainder are about how we relate and deal with other people. And Jesus uses rhetorical devices in the Sermon on the Mount to set up what he's saying and to give structure to it. I've highlighted it on the slides that we'll come to in a minute for you. In each one, we have a statement from the law. You've heard it said. We have Jesus' um, explanation of the true intent, but I say to you. And we have practical application, anyone who. And those three sets of phrases crop up time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount. The fact that he uses a common structure for each of them suggests there's a common thread running through them, I would say. So, if we could have the next slide, we'll look at murder. Um, Jesus takes the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, and explains that it's far more wide-ranging than its purely literal meaning. I kind of changed what I was going to say today on Friday night. This week was, Friday was Holocaust Memorial Day, for anyone who didn't realize. And I did something I don't often do and stayed up really late after the news watching a program about the origins of the Holocaust, which was probably not the best thing to do just before you go to bed. But um, I was really struck as I watched that program by a number of things. One was... The Holocaust didn't just begin with people going out murdering people. The Holocaust began with dehumanizing and using words against people that made them less than human and made them other. That's how it started. It also wasn't purely carried out by jackbooted Nazis. It was carried out by ordinary men and women in parts of Europe, certainly, in Lithuania and Latvia particularly, who were killing the very people they lived next door to, worked with, and shopped with. The road to the Holocaust began long before people started shooting people or before before they started gassing people. The tragedy is that as soon as order breaks down... Even in the most ordered of societies, murder starts happening. We've seen it in the former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Burundi, Libya, Afghanistan, and now Ukraine as well. Uh, And they're just obvious ones. It's why we need to pray for peace and order in our own nation. One bit of theology we don't often think about but which is fundamentally important and won't be any surprise to those of you who know me, particularly when we think about our dealings with other people, is that every single one of us, every human being on the planet, is made in the image of God. 
Every single one of us, everybody who walks past this building while we're in here is made in the image of God. Everyone who gets off a boat coming across the channel is made in the image of God. Suala Braverman needs to learn that. And everybody who opposes us, dislikes us, and mistreats us is made in the image of God. Every single one of us is an image bearer. Murder is destroying the image of God. It isn't just the ultimate sin against another person, which it is. I'm not downplaying that. But it's also a sin against God, against the image of God. It is destroying the image of God. Once we start dehumanizing people and failing to see them as bearers of the image of God, we are at the beginning of a slope which leads ultimately to murder. That applies to all ends of the political, political spectrum. Um, I'm not just picking on Suella Braverman. I think she's a particularly bad example. But if you look at almost any significant dispute, those on both sides dehumanize their opponents. Jesus sees that. He knew about it. He knew what would cause the Holocaust 2,000 years ago. He sees that and he calls out the behaviors that lead us on the road to murder. He understood the causes of the Holocaust. I said that, didn't I? He intensifies this injunction against killing to include being angry with someone or calling them a fool. And some of your versions will have the phrase without cause in it. Um, that's because a 5th century scribe decided to soften the, soften the commandment. But actually the phrase without cause is not in the oldest or most reliable manuscripts. He also includes the, the Aramaic word raka. He says, don't call your brother or sister raka, which literally means empty head, but was pre- pretty much a swear word in Aramaic. So you've got Jesus swearing here, folks. Um, But he extends it to calling people fool, which uses the Greek word from which we get our word moron. Now, when we do that, we are reflecting an attitude to others in which we set ourselves above them and regard them as being less than ourselves. That's the first step towards murder, according to Jesus, not me. Um, So that's... This whole passage has a kind of resonance for me, as it's the first passage the Holy Spirit ever used in convicting me in my Christian life of an aspect of my behavior. Um, I was among a group of people who would often call one another silly fool, um, and I had to stop it. Uh, the sad thing is that nearly 50 years later, it still crops up occasionally, especially when I'm stuck behind a driver who's holding me up. Um, But the Holocaust started then years earlier with scapegoating, blaming the Jews for a nation's woes. And we see it today, blaming Mexicans for a nation's woes, blaming illegal, uh, not illegal, blaming asylum seekers for a nation's woes and labeling them as illegal immigrants. And failing to recognize that those Mexicans, those Jews, Those asylum seekers, those gay people, are made in the image of God. 
It resulted in the deaths of millions of them, and the mass graves are still being discovered today. Jesus, though, counsels us to make sure we put things right with our brother or sister before it reaches the point of becoming a legal or a physical matter. He also tells us to put it right before coming into God's presence. That doesn't mean that the person you approach will always be open to putting things right, but we are called to try. I've had instances where I've repeatedly tried and it hasn't worked, but we have to try. Jesus is here dealing with the heart and the intent, which ultimately lead to the physical act of murder. We mustn't let our hearts get to the point where we no longer regard a person or a group of people as human. They are all, every single one of them, made in God's image. So we'll move on to the next slide, if we could, John. The next, next section is about adultery. Um, Jesus then moves on to adultery, which is utterly destructive to any relationship. Once again, he is stressing that it's a matter of the intent and the heart, not primarily the physical act. But when we fail to deal with our heart, we are on the road to the act itself. Once again, he uses the same rhetorical structure. He says, you've heard that it's said, but I say to you and anyone who. Same structure for each of these. In our world, pornography, late night TV, going along with workplace culture can lead us into the sort of things that Jesus is talking about here. The way it manifests nowadays is different. Well, it's not that different, but... Uh, sorry, I'll unsay that. Um, but there are a whole load of other things that lead us on that journey nowadays than there were in Jesus' time. In my working life... Before, I did work when I was a church leader, but in my working life, before I was a church leader, um, I saw workplace affairs destroy multiple marriages and break up families. It was absolutely tragic. But what Jesus is saying here is that it is entertaining thoughts and allowing our imaginations to wander that can lead us into the full-blown behaviors. Pornography is perverting sexuality in our society. It's not victimless. And to return to our theological point, what's wrong with pornography is that it defiles the image of God. Murder destroys the image of God. Pornography defiles it. And there are practical steps that we can take in using our devices. Um, we can switch safe search on. We can block domains on our home routers and so on. And that will stop things even appearing on our screens inadvertently. I can't remember the last time I did a search on one of my devices and anything untoward came up simply because I've blocked nearly all of it now. It's taken quite a long time, but it doesn't appear anymore. Jesus also uses hyperbole in this section, which you'll miss if you read it in a flat way. I and the commentators I trust don't believe 
that Jesus is literally telling you to pluck your eye out or chop your arm off. Um, but that we need to be really serious about those things that can entrap us. When I was a teenager, we had a really godly young guy in our church youth group who later went on to train to be a doctor. I don't know what's happened to him subsequently. But he actually attempted to pluck his eye out after reading this passage. Fortunately, he didn't succeed. But a literal reading, folks, is not always the correct one. Um, Jesus here is using hyperbole, in my view. Some of you may disagree with me. We need to be radical in making sure we avoid such sins. That's what Jesus is saying here. But he's also, once again, stressing that it's a matter of the heart and intent, not just the act itself, horrific as as that is. Okay, if we could move on to the next one. Now, on the first Sunday of June in 1969, I came home in my scout uniform from church parade. We used to have church parade on the first Sunday of every month. Anyone else here ever have that? Anne, Alan, some of us, yeah. Used to get points for being at church on the first Sunday of the month. But I came home from church parade that Sunday to be told by my mother that she was leaving with the man from two doors away. Uh, And that I needed to decide in the next half hour whether I was going to go with her or stay with my father. That led to five years of my parents suing one another for custody. I lived in Kramer versus Kramer until I was 15 or 16, and I still cannot watch that film. That experience left me and my sisters profoundly damaged. It harmed my education, and it's only because of what God has done in my life since that I'm able to function well, I think I function reasonably well, that I'm able to function well nowadays. Divorce is a terrible thing, and it should not be taken lightly. In our world, divorce is being taken lightly because marriage is being taken lightly. I actually don't think that it's divorce that's the problem we need to tackle. But that's a whole separate subject. Some of you won't agree with me on this, but I am convinced that the Bible teaches that it is acceptable to remarry people who've been validly divorced as the victims of adultery, abuse, neglect, or desertion, and some possible other circumstances. Although Jesus only mentions adultery here, you will find... Um, references to neglect in Exodus 21, 10 and 11, and abuse, and desertion in 1 Corinthians 7. But remarriage has to be done with great care and in a way that ensures that a godly respect for marriage is maintained. The area of remarriage is not one where we're sorry, is one where we're not dealing with abstract principles. It's not inconsequential because we're dealing with people who've been damaged and hurt. And it's necessary to deal with every case individually. 
Now, some of you will disagree with my stance on this. All I would say is, well, it's not all I'd say, you know that. But what I would just say is I've had to grapple with this in the real world with people weeping on my settee. Um, you know, and I've done it, I believe, in good faith. So please hear me. I'm not saying here we can set aside scripture. I don't think we can. The area, I said that, but to remarry lightly is to dishonor marriage. But to withhold marriage wrongly, or potentially wrongly, is to deprive people of a part of their humanity and possibly to put temptation to immorality in their way. It's really important that churches find a biblically sound and pastorally wise approach to handling that issue. The dilemma for church leaders is how does the church honour the biblical pattern for marriage on the one hand without damaging people who've been hurt by broken marriages in the past when they seek to remarry on the other? Do pray for our leaders as they handle these situations and trust that they're seeking to do the right thing. I am so glad I don't have to deal with those situations. In, I shouldn't say that, should I? But if a leader refuses to remarry someone, remember, they can and they will simply go to someone else who will marry them. There was one situation I got involved in where I wasn't that comfortable about remarrying someone, but they actually said, well, if you won't do it, I'll go somewhere else. Um, and in the end, I did participate in that marriage because it was a way of maintaining relationship and keeping the discipleship going. Now, some people in the church would not agree with what I did there, but to me, discipleship trumped rules and policies. But you, you have to decide every situation on its own merits. So... I wrote the pastoral care paper for my course, of, oh, oh, sorry, I wrote the paper for my pastoral care course at Regent College on this subject of remarriage. Um, Sue will tell you that I think at the time, for some reason, I was end of term and I was trying to crank out about four papers uh, and one of them was on divorce and remarriage and Sue um, said, well, I'll go and get any books you need from the library if you like. Uh, and she went down to the library to collect all the books that I'd ordered. And there was this stack of books on divorce. Um, and Sue, bless her, said to the librarian, I think we're all right. <laughs> um, but So um, I'll try to give you a few pointers from the 3,700 words I wrote on the subject back then. Jesus is speaking here into a situation where there's an ongoing dispute between two groups of rabbis, the Hillelites and the Shammites. The Hillelites, on the one hand, who they followed a rabbi, a rabbi called Hillel. That's why they're called Hillelites. Um, the Hillelites, on the one hand, um, advocated a form of no-fault divorce or any-cause divorce. In fact, for the Hillelites, if you burnt the dinner, that was cause for a divorce. Okay, That's how far they would have gone. The Shammites, on the other hand, who followed guests, a guy called Shammai, um, they, on the other hand, were much tighter and had a much more constrained set of circumstances in which someone could be divorced. So when, in Matthew 19, further on, the, the, 
the Pharisees try to trap Jesus in this debate. They use the question of whether it's lawful to divorce for any cause. And that's the phrase that plays into that debate. Uh, It's what the debate was all about. The debate about no-fault divorce is not a new one. It goes back 2,000 years to first century Judea. Now, in Jewish culture, a certificate of divorce entitled the woman who was being divorced, who was given the certificate, to remarry. It actually said, you are free to remarry any Jewish man. That's why a husband divorcing his wife had to give her a certificate of divorce to show that she was able to remarry. In the first century world, a divorced woman would find it very difficult, if not impossible, to support herself once divorced. And remarriage was often the only alternative to prostitution. Now, in my time as a church leader... I came across several situations where one partner in a marriage just didn't want to carry on. They, I don't want, no, I won't use that phrase. They didn't want to be married anymore. They wanted out so that they could be free to live life as they saw it without the constraints of being married. In every one of those cases, it was devastating to their family emotionally, spiritually, and financially. And as Christians, I would suggest we perhaps need to unplug our understanding of marriage from what the law of the land regards as marriage. A biblical understanding of marriage and a legal understanding of marriage are on a divergent path. And at some point, we're going to have to unplug the two. Hopefully not in my lifetime. But marriage is a really serious matter and not to be taken lightly. If I had my time again, one of the things I would do would be to do much, much more in the way of marriage preparation. But what we see Jesus doing here is once again, he's driving at the heart and the intent behind our actions, not just what we actually do. He's looking at what's the intent here. Now, each of these three examples points to how we relate to other people and how we treat them. At the core, that's what they're they're pointing to. So I'm just going to close with three thoughts. Due to technical constraints, they have already all appeared at once. Um, But... If you can just stick with me and not try and race ahead of me, that would be great. But it shows you I'm, I'm coming into land here. So the first one is to do with the image of God. It doesn't get mentioned in this passage. But you and I are made in the image of God. We need to conduct our relationships and our interactions, even with that useless customer service rep on the phone, always recognizing that the person we are dealing with is made in the image of God. I used to work in call, I was a call center consultant before I um, became a church leader. And I used to see the abuse that people in call centers had to put up with. It is just horrific. Anyway, moving on. But that image, the image of God, is precious and of value. We have value because we're made in the image of God. 
We don't have value because of what we do, how we behave, what we say, who our parents were. That image is precious and of value. And I would go so far as to say it's the image of God that separates us from the animals. I think the argument that what separates us from the animals is having a soul is going to run into really serious buffers before too long. And for years I have said that what separates us from the animals is that we are made in the image of God. They're not, in my opinion. We mustn't do anything to defile, to damage or destroy that image of God in those around us, particularly where it's fragile, where it's faint, or where it's damaged. Image of God is really important in our understanding of how we relate to other people. Everyone here is made in the image of God. Everyone here carries something of the character and nature of God in them that I don't. And I need everyone here in order to complete what's lacking in me. Jesus is also interested in our intent and our heart. What goes on within us, not just what we do or say that's known to others. Evangelicalism, like the Pharisees, has often been more concerned with outer behaviors than with the inner attitudes and heart. I've lost count of the number of people who've apologized to me for the fact they've smoked outside after a meeting. I'd far rather someone smoked in front of me than surreptitiously behind me and tried to pretend, despite the smell, that they don't. That's just one. I'm not saying smoking is a, is a, is a sin necessarily. Um, I think it's a manifestation of something else, but that's a whole different subject. Um, but... We, we have been guilty of being more concerned with what it looks like on the outside than with what's going on in here. Integrity is about being the same when nobody's watching as when we're on public display. If I'm one thing standing up here and another thing when I go home, I am lacking integrity um, and my heart is not right. It's in our private walk with God that we develop spiritual resilience and draw near to God. And hear from God of those aspects of our lives that do need adjustment. In my case, calling people a fool. And then the final one is our inner thoughts. Great evil starts up here. It starts with a thought. It continues with scapegoating and blaming. It eventually works itself out in actions. We see it in conflict around the world all the time. We need to be people who give attention to our inner thoughts and feelings and to bring them under God's lordship. And we do that by soaking ourselves in his word, including Deuteronomy, by the way, I, I have a tip for reading Deuteronomy, which is when you read Deuteronomy, think of Moses in his old age, leaning on his staff, making his last speech to his people of all the things that he considers important 
and you'll read Deuteronomy with different eyes. Sorry. So we do that by soaking ourselves in God's word, praying by ourselves and with others, and living our lives with accountability to godly people around us. Let us be people who live transparently and who live out the meaning, not the letter, of the law. Let's pray, and I'll hand back to Marion. Father, your word can come across as hard, yet we know when we read this passage, when we imagine the Lord Jesus preaching it on a hillside, we know that it speaks to the heart. It speaks to a love for those around us. And it speaks to a concern for the image of God in each one of us and in those we encounter. Lord, will you make us people who are able to live lives transparently, loving those who we wouldn't necessarily love, recognizing that they carry your image in themselves. And Lord, will you make us those who reach out and who are an expression of your kingdom, not because of the list of things we don't do, but because of the way we go beyond what's simply required to express your love, your compassion, your mercy, and your righteousness in this world. Amen.